everybody, welcome to episode 24 of Literary Disco, the Poetry Edition. Today's episode in two parts. We will begin with a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. And then we will look at two poetry collections, Smith Blue by Camille T. Dungy and When My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, Hi. guys. Hello there. All right, so we uh, after two episodes of doing the bookshelf roulette, we're going to return to bookshelf. It's like an old Aww. friend. It's like a classic corner. It is. But with it's like two something C's. that's easier to prepare, prepare for. I'll go first. My my bookshelf revisit has nothing to do with a bookshelf or books. Um, so They call that the Todd revisit. <laughs> I'm going to pull a Todd. Yeah. Uh, I have recently, for whatever reason, rediscovered the... Or You know what? Let me put it a different way. I feel like there's been a resurgence in the notion of an oral history. And there's been all these articles written as oral histories. And somebody sent me... Uh, Vanity Fair just did an oral history of Pulp Fiction. Uh, and that was okay. It's just an okay... Uh, it's not very long, so it's and it's not very detailed. But it reminded me a couple of months ago, like this is a while ago, like maybe four or five months ago, I read GQ did an oral history of the TV show Cheers. Have yes, you guys read yes, this? Read oh, that. wow, no. Amazing. I would love to read that. It It's one of the coolest articles I've ever read. And they interviewed everybody. I mean, they cover... Um, you know, all the cast that have gone on, they also talk to all the writers, network executives, and it's just a great example of how an oral history can give you an overall perspective and show um, people's personalities. Uh, you you kind of come away feeling a little mixed about Kelsey Grammer, for instance, mm -hmm. and uh, it's just, it's an incredibly in-depth, insightful article, and it just makes me appreciate the oral history as a form, and I, I, I feel like it's kind of coming back and uh, in, in popular uh, magazine articles, and I think it's really smart and a really cool way to approach, especially when it comes to film and television projects, because as opposed to, like, you know, I don't know, any other art form, uh, it's always a social art form. You know, it's made by a group of people, like sometimes up to 150 people work on a TV show. So approaching something like a movie or a TV show through the lens of an oral history makes perfect sense. Yeah. And you get, even though it's a limited experience, so it's not like a huge historical event, which mm -hmm. opens up, a, it's like a very limited experience. You know, you're only shooting an episode of Cheers for one week. A season is only about five months long. So it's a limited experience, but you have all these people coming together and they all have different perspectives. I just, I love the form. And I wish this Pulp Fiction article had been better. A bunch of people had told me about it, so I finally looked it up and... Um, it's okay, it's just not long enough, and it's not as in-depth, but there's some great stuff about, like, Sam Jackson's audition, which I never mm. knew. Um, so, anyway, you should... I'll, I'll and where was, the, where was the Pulp Fiction article? That was in Vanity Fair. I love those oral histories. I have a bunch of books about bands that are oral histories. So, I have a book about uh, the Beastie Boys, that's an oral history, and uh, the replacements. I agree with you, Ryder. I think that's, the like, the coolest way to sort of examine something in minutiae. I think we love minutiae yeah. now. You know, that's that's the thing. Is Remember um, our friend Mark Haskell-Smith, who was on the show, who went in search of the bridge and under the bridge, the Red Hot Chili Pepper oh, song. Right. And basically, you know, a lot of his investigation was oral history, talking to people who were there and, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, where people shot up in the 80s and things like that. I, I love that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm and I'm a huge Pulp Fiction fan, so I have to go read this. I can't wait. Vanity Fair also uh, did, they recently did one on Freaks and Geeks, which is a great show. And the, oh, I have it's to read so that. good because, you know, Paul Feig or however you pronounce his name, I'm not sure. Um, he, it's so much about his personal experience. So the history weaves in his own personal stories with the experiences of the cast growing up while doing the show. It's really, really good. It's a good one. Uh, what about you, Julia? What are you revisiting? I am actually visiting. <laughs> um, I want to talk about a, the book that I'm reading now. Um, I suggested that we read it for this, but it, it's just way too long. Um, I saw Lincoln recently, as everyone else in America did, and working at a historical organization, I immediately realized that more people that I worked with had read uh, Team of Rivals by uh, Doris... Goodwin. Uh, Kearns Goodwin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, I forgot the middle name. Um, 
than, like, more people at my work have read Team of Rivals than have read, like, Harry Potter. Everyone's always talking about it. So this book is amazing. It won't be a surprise. It won a Pulitzer Prize. But what's great about it is that she takes these four people who are almost, who almost got the Republican nomination and she gives them actually equal time and kind of really carves out where they're from, what their lives were like, what their very specific points of view were. And I haven't finished the book yet, so I really shouldn't be talking about it, but I'm just really into it. And they all are sort of like marching towards each other, but they're all representative of a very, very different places in America at the time and very different points of view. Like one person was extremely religious. One person was a family man. We have Lincoln himself, who is like the ultimate underdog figure of the time. It's just so well written. It's just such an interesting perspective on history that, you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, I can't talk about it for too long because I don't have much more to say other than I'm enjoying reading it, but um, I really recommend it. How long is it? It's almost 800 pages. Oh, good God. Oh. Team of Rivals, Oral Histories, and Todd, what do you got? I have an actual book. Um, Yay. So there's a new book out right now by a writer I like named Ron Curry Jr. called Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles um, that I believe we're going to talk about at some later date. Um, but his first book uh, is a book called God is Dead that I absolutely loved. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, a challenge. So... I read this book because it was assigned to me to review it for the Los Angeles Times. And I read it, and I absolutely loved it. Loved it. Fantastic book. It's about um, God comes to Earth and takes the form of a woman uh, in the in the Somali desert, if I remember correctly, who um, is attacked by dogs and killed. And then these dogs get the sentience of God for a little bit, and then the dogs are, of course, what? killed. And, it's, and then it's... The entire story is the world without God. You know, what happens when God dies? When everyone realizes that God is dead. And it's sort of an interlinking collection of stories, really, but it's a novel. Um, absolutely fascinating book. A dystopian future um, because, you know, God is dead. And so it's the moralist between the ethicists and all sorts of crazy stuff. Great book. But anyway, I was assigned to read it by the LA Times. I loved it. Uh, I got in contact with Ron afterwards, if I remember correctly, and we became friends. And this was, you know, this was like six years ago. And subsequently, now, if there's a book of his that comes out, I can't review it somewhere because I know the guy. And I feel like, oh, this is a book I'd so love to review. But ethically speaking. Why did you ever befriend him? (laughs) What a mistake. What a terrible mistake. Because I like to go out and we aren't necessarily as bound by the ethics of uh, disclosure that the Los Angeles Times is here on Literary Disco. So we're going to talk about Ron Curry and, and, you know, we've talked about other friends' books. Um, But, you know, it's one of those strange conundrums that I've faced over the years writing a lot of book criticism is that I'll find a great book like God is Dead by Ron Curry. And, uh, you know, if I've written a good review of it, you know, sometimes people will contact me and then that naturally becomes, you know, some sort of quasi-friendship. Um, and it becomes tough. I, I more frequently hear from people who I've written good reviews about than bad reviews. Those people that I write bad reviews just, uh, uh, threaten me in public. So that's, that's a nice trade off. Okay. Um, or in private periodically, but that's, that's another story. Watch your back. For, that's for scary. later. Um, anyway, <laughs> so his new book is, is getting great reviews, um, and we're going to talk about it. But if you get a chance, if you guys like, you guys being the listening public, like dystopian crazy books about uh, the end of uh, faith in the world, I recommend God is Dead by Ron Curry Jr. That sounds awesome. Someday I'll write a book and then we'll, I'll have you guys do it on literary. Oh, that'd be great. That would be so fun. I'll just stay quiet. Like, Here's my book. All right, stick around for when we take on some poetry. Up next. everybody welcome back to literary disco today because of something i said in print (laughs) can you believe todd stuck his foot in his mouth yeah because of something i did in print um we are now reviewing two books of poetry on this episode of literary disco yay 
Okay. <laughs> what happened was recently. The incident. Describe it. <laughs> the Los Angeles Times, uh, as they do frequently, uh, contacted writers at the end of the year and asked them to make their literary resolutions. Now, in the past, when they've asked me to make my literary resolutions, I have said things like, oh, I'm going to read Moby Dick. And then trusting that no one has read Moby Dick, hoping no one will ask me about it a year later because they haven't read it either. So that's served me well over the course of the last several years. Uh, but this year you knew that we would ask you about Moby Dick if you had said that. So. Yeah. <laughs> this year I feel like I felt like I should do something honestly. So this year when the Los Angeles Times asked me my literary resolutions, I said that I wanted to read and understand more poetry. And the proviso was that I wanted to read poetry by people who were A, alive, and B, not my friends. That went out there, and I thought, you know, then I'll get to I'll get to reading some poetry. Um, but then a week later, I got an email from uh, Eloise Klein Healy, who is the poet laureate of Los Angeles. And Eloise said, "I saw it, what you said in Los Angeles Times, and I'd love to help you." And I thought, <laughs> "Oh shit!" <laughs> now it's Call on. Call me on your bluff. Called me on it, and. <laughs> So I said, oh, fantastic. I, this is great. Um, can you recommend five books of poetry by people who are both alive and who I probably don't know? And so she sent me a list of books. And sure enough, they were by living poets who I did not know personally. And two of them were um, When My Brother Was an Aztec by Natalie Diaz and Smith Blue by Camille Dungy. Um, and only after reading Smith Blue by Camille Dungy did I realize I'd met her once. But that, uh, that doesn't count as friends, I don't think. No, it doesn't. Um, you don't really have any real yeah, friends anyway. No. It's all sort of just imposters in my life. So <laughs> here's the thing about me and poetry, as, as faithful listeners will know. I don't really understand it. And uh, I don't really read enough of it to understand it because now I'm afraid of it. But I need to know it better. I mean, I, I've, got, uh, I've got two degrees in English, so I feel like I've read some poetry in my life. Mm -hmm. I run a graduate school in creative writing where we offer poetry as a major, where I feel like I should be able to speak more cogently with the uh, assembled student body of poets. There's that. And then there's, I sort of have a general fear of poets, mm -hmm. uh, personally. It's, it's their dad's old cardigans that they're wearing. Um, it's the funny hats. It's the lilting voice. Before you like completely uh, demolish the poet as a as a character or as a person, <laughs> it really uh, is a character. It's a character. I, I would not... like to ex I would like to explore what you're saying about the fear of poetry itself, yes. like the fear of approaching poetry. Or I, I think that that is so pervasive, and I feel it too. And I just think it sucks. You know, like, I really, I hate that. I hate that we all are intimidated by the notion of poetry and that we all feel like we're afraid that we're not going to get it yeah. or that we're not going to understand it correctly right. or misinterpret poetry. And that is such a bummer. And I just, I don't know what to say beyond the fact that I hate that because when I read a good poetry collection and, like, both of these, I thought, you know... Were excellent, I got yeah. so into both of these books that mm -hmm. I, I'm like, I want to keep reading poetry. And I know that that was probably because these were both good books that were recommended to us and mm -hmm. that there's a lot of crap out there. But there's a lot of crap out there in every genre, right. every every type of thing that we can read or watch. So um, poetry just is, is has a bad rap. I agree with bad. you. Um, and can I say, too, that when I was first starting to write, and I mean as a teenager, you know, teens love writing poetry. And there's a moment, oh, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's because... I mean, I haven't thought this through entirely, but so feel free to say I'm wrong. But I feel like it's because poetry has just more opportunity to be really weird and try new things and not necessarily make mm -hmm. sense in a way that really locks in with the teenage brain. And it's really sad yeah. that at a certain point, then you realize you're writing bad poems and then you just stop altogether <laughs> before right. going through right. the discipline of writing good poems. One of the issues for me with poetry is that when I do read it, it's typically because it is someone that I know. And so when I'm reading it, the experience of reading it is like, okay, I'm, I'm getting a piece of this person. But when I read these two books where it's people that I don't know anything about, my first reaction at first, and it, it evolved, was sort of like you get that assignment in sophomore, you know, reading the romantics, whatever, and you got to figure out Ode on a Grecian Urn. Um, right. And, and that's that fear level, you know, where I don't have that 
walking investment. I'm invested now in Camille Dungy and in Natalie Diaz, um, but I think maybe that's just my sort of mental mm-hmm. barrier. I think that yeah. makes sense. I mean, like I have become really engaged with epic poetry and, you know, very classical poetry. I mean, I love Emily Dickinson. I love Edna, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and I love Homer. Like, it's it's weird to say to myself, you know, I don't really read much poetry. And then, you know, I realized I read the Odyssey, like, for kicks last year, and that is poetry. It's like, we, but we have this idea of, of modern poetry as this, it's like abstract that we always assume that it's abstract art. But when I started, when my brother was an Aztec, the first poem, the first poem, I was like, ooh, I bet this is about drugs. Is this about drugs? Oh, my God, it is about drugs. Go me. I figured it out like a puzzle as if, you know, I was doing a, right. a crossword puzzle. And there was this huge sense of dorky, embarrassing reward because I expected, I went into the book expecting to work to know what was happening. So the difference and and so I need to be taught here, and I know Ryder, you know more about poetry than I do, so I'm I'm happy to be taught this stuff. I think I always am attracted to narrative poetry, which yeah, Natalie Diaz is clearly a far more narrative poet than Camille Dungey. And in fact, several pieces in this book um, are basically short essays um, mm-hmm. or short stories, depending upon how you look at it. Um, and so, you know, when I think about poems that have moved me in the past, I think of like Raymond Carver's poems. But Raymond Carver's poems are basically just really ver- short versions of his stories. But I immediately, I thought I was going to have to work, and then I immediately got into uh, when my brother was an Aztec because there was there's a narrative arc. What, one of the issues I have reading poetry, and I don't have this in reading other things, is that if after say like ten lines or something of a poem, if I'm not immediately emotionally engaged my mind starts to wander and i completely lose the thread of what i'm reading and that's not true when i read 10 sentences of a book so i'm wondering i'm wondering sort of how you guys combat that and and how you get that investment so i'm, I'm curious to hear your guys's opinions well why don't we get into the natalie diaz like let's okay. get specific yeah. and, and talk when my brother was an aztec i mean there is a real narrative arc throughout the whole book about obviously her brother um but it also I feel like the first earlier parts of the book are about growing up on a reservation Mm -hmm. um, because Natalie Diaz is Native American. She grew up on a reservation and then she was a professional basketball player, which I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And she like toured Europe as a basketball player. um, And, And, you know, basketball is big on the reservations. There's that book on the res that Ian Frazier wrote Mm -hmm. um, about the, the girl who's a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Right. So the beginning, I would say like the first half is 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 about, you know, uh, the reservation life in general. It has some I thought some of the best poems were like about her as a kid or growing up or as a teenager on the reservation. Mm-hmm. But then there it also broadens out to she creates a whole sort of a whole bunch of other characters. There's a lot of recurring themes. And then about halfway through the book, uh, the section two, it picks back up on her brother and her brother's a drug addict and kind of brings down a lot of her family her parents are struggling with how to deal with her brother she's struggling with how to deal with her brother um and it goes all the way to the point where there's one poem that's about her brother being dead mm-hmm. it turns out her brother didn't die as far as i could tell by the end of yeah. the poem and that she's just a, she's using his wake as the wake is the setting for a poem but it's an imaginary wake for her right. brother um but anyway uh i actually and, you know, it's, it's hard not to compare these two books because we read them at the same time, but I, I, I really want to try not to, but... Um, but you're going to? I thought... <laughs> I'm going to. I thought that this... That, I thought that this was a... Well, let, let's put it this way. I, I like the narrative aspect. I love the subjects of this poem, mm-hmm. of, of this book, uh, and all the poems. I thought she's a much less skilled poet than Camille Dungy, and mm. I thought she's doesn't... She has... I can't wait for her next book, basically. I, I'm assuming this is her first book of poetry, and I felt like it was, let me throw everything at you but the kitchen sink. It was so varied, and I can tell you exactly what a Natalie Diaz poem is about. Like I can tell you some of the images that she tends to go to and the concepts she likes to explore, but I could not tell you what a Natalie Diaz poem looks like. I can't tell you what it feels like because these are so all over the place. And even within one poem, it'll bounce around all over the place. This really hit me. I mean, the brother thing is a good example. 
the first poem of the collection is is the title poem when my brother was an aztec and it's brilliant it uses the images of aztec worship and sacrifice and applies them to her drug addicted brother as if he's uh, like an Aztec priest or an Aztec god, this sort of spiteful, angry character that her parents are worshipping but then hating, but then sacrificing themselves. It's so brilliant, and it's all over the place in a good way. But then, throughout the, the book, the collection, there's all these other poems about her brother, and they vary so much, not in terms of what they're talking about, but how they're talking about her brother, that I... I got lost and I started to feel like, oh, she's just improvising. She's just, she's not sure who she is as a poet yet. And she hasn't found her voice or her, the way that she wants to approach this subject or this personal story. She's riffing. And so there's like 10 different versions of the story of her brother. And I'm not sure which one, I mean, I, I feel like the first one's the best, but that's also the first one that I read. Mm -hmm. But for instance, her brother appears as a magician. Her mm -hmm. brother appears as Jesus. Her brother appears as Judas. She's all over the place with who her brother is or, or what imagery she's going to rely on. Her brother's an Aztec. Her brother's... Uh, Cheshire cat. I mean, it's all over the place. And it's really... I think that that's a mistake. I think that she needs to learn to tone that down. I don't know. How did you guys feel? I didn't read this all in one sitting, I, which I think probably... And this is another question is, are you supposed to read books of poetry in one sitting? Or are you supposed mm -hmm. to bump around? Our friend Bree uh, told Julia that you shouldn't read a book all of poetry all in one sitting you should you should you know digest them i i was more moved on a story level by um natalie diaz's work than i was i think by camille's work because i understood it better um so mm. i i don't i can't tell who's a more skilled poet versus who um can sort of speak to me as a writer in a a clearer way you know i think of a poem like how to go to dinner with a brother on drugs, which is um, mm -hmm. in the second half of uh, when my brother was an Aztec. I, I found that profoundly moving and profoundly upsetting. It was easier for me to to keep straight in my mind what everything was about because there are specific characters, I guess. And so I, maybe I'm reading it like I would read a novel. And maybe that's my downfall when reading poetry is I'm always looking for that character. But this poem in particular, How to Go to Dinner with a Brother That's on Drugs, um, he hasn't eaten in years, he will never change, be some kind of happy he didn't appear dressed as a greed god, headdress of green quetzal feathers, jaguar loincloth littered with bite-shaped rosettes. Um, I, I, those images all jumped out at me when I read that poem. Um, but at the end, I don't know if, if what they mean all the time. And I don't know if that's just my lack of comprehension as a good reader right no i i think she's actually going for a very i, I mm -hmm. the poet that she actually references Lorca a couple times and she reminds me a lot of of him and and he is very surrealist in that sense like his stuff is just kind of it's it's he, mm -hmm. he creates imagery that comes from an emotional place first and foremost and doesn't always have the metaphorical connection mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, referential meaning that uh, I think other poets aim for. There is just a sense of an immediacy, and uh, and, and she is aiming for that. I feel like she's missing the mark sometimes. There's a poem called Dome Riddle, and that one is where I, I, I was, I tapped out. <laughs> I tapped out. <laughs> I like, I like we have a wrestling metaphor in this. <laughs> right. If you read this poem it's it has a lot of the images like for instance she has lots of legless characters she has the gatling gun references constantly she has aztec references obviously there's a lot of native american reservation life references but this one is like there's so many names dropped into this poem there's like david and goliath yeah. there's Lorca. there's borges there's and then there's all this personal imagery, single scoop, vanilla, head rush, thunderhead, fastball, lightning rod, mad scientist in a white lab helmet, ghost of smoky mirror, coyote beacon, calcium coral of pale perlino ponies, the desert sea. I mean, it's like, what? Halloween references, Hotchkiss obliterated headdress, Gatling lit lap. It's like, calm down. And I just want her to focus a little yeah. bit. And it's not. And I guess, you know, I am a fan of like Allen Ginsberg, but. Uh, Howl, for instance, is something does something like this too, where it's like a series of crazy images all piled up on one another. And I guess I kind of wouldn't 
want to read a new Hal either. You know, like, I feel like Hal served its purpose in 1953 mm-hmm. or whenever it was first published. But now it's like, as a poet, I don't, I expect you to do a little bit more than just throw a whole bunch of crazy images at me and, um, and overwhelm me with your word, your words and your so, images. But let me ask you a question, writer. So like that, that poem, I, I, I had problems mm-hmm. reading that one. But as I was reading that one, I thought, I bet this is yeah. really great read aloud. I bet. If you are embodying mm-hmm. that stuff on a stage, mm-hmm. it's a different experience than me hearing it in my head. Which that's the other issue that I have is that I I frequently think poetry, even though I don't like to go to poetry readings all that often, I think that poetry is meant to be heard. Well, I think any great work in any genre, if you are really locked in with it, you are hearing its rhythm and its musicality in some way. I don't know. I mean, like, I feel that when I read great fiction as well. But I I know what you mean, Todd. I want to go back Mm -hmm. to, though, what Ryder is saying about the references, because I found, so I'm a classics nerd, and there was a ton of classics stuff in here. And basically what I felt is I think similar to what you're saying, writers, like when I got the references, I was like, okay, great shortcut to something. I, I know exactly what she's saying because I know what this is or who this is. So like a, one of the great lines that was meaningful to me when I was reading it was, um, her, their father. So many of these poems are about their parents, which I like. Um, and again, our dad, our Sisyphus pushes Mm -hmm. his old blue heart up to the Mm -hmm. station. And, you know, if you are familiar with Sisyphus, which I guess, you know, it could be argued that everyone should be, you know, it's really meaningful, but it's the last line of the poem. And if you don't, it feels like a shortcut to something that she's not actually expressing herself. Yeah. You know, she's not like creating the feeling of of futility. Yeah. You know what this I mean? This felt like a very she's young poet mentioning to me. It. This felt like a young poet who is... is trying to show off a lot of those references while also coming up with innovative language and innovative turns of phrase and combining them kind of pell-mell. Like, it didn't feel cohesive to me. Let me read a poem that I really loved, though. It's called The Beauty of a Busted Fruit. It's oh, that's page. a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When we were children, we traced our knees, shins, and elbows for the slightest hint of wound, searched them for any sad red-blue scab marking us both victim and survivor. All this before we knew that some wounds can't heal, before we knew the jagged scars of great-grandmother's amputated legs, the way a rock can split a man's head open to its red syrup like a watermelon, the way a brother can pick at his skin for snakes and spiders only he can see. Maybe you have grown out of yours. Maybe you no longer haul those wounds with you onto every bus through the side streets of a new town. Maybe you have never set them rocking in the lamplight on a nightstand beside a stranger's bed, carrying your hurts like two cracked pomegranates because you haven't learned to see the beauty of a busted fruit, the bright stain it will leave on your lips, the way it will make people want to kiss you. Oh, that... Good stuff. It's a great that poem. That poem yeah. to me is is what she should be writing in the sense that it's focused. It doesn't have, like, crazy imagery. It has very specific images that develop, that go somewhere. Um, and this the the end of it the idea the way the busted fruit on the lips staining her lips and the way people want to kiss you that is just there's so much in that poem and i really wish she focused all of her poetry that way and and wrote with a little bit more restraint let me ask you a question though can i ask a question about that that particular poem yeah so sure um (laughs) this is gonna sound stupid Mm -hmm. but why does she have um, knees, wound, marking us, can't heal, grandmother's man's head, way a brother, etc., on a second line? Um, why is that the break on um, for each of those things? What kind of poem is this? Well, I mean, it's not it's not in any sort of formal structure. It's not a wait, wait, what line break you're saying. Why are there line breaks without punctuation? No, why, what, what is the choice the poet makes? Why are they breaking where yeah, they're breaking? Yeah, why are breaking? they breaking where they're breaking? So I know that there's different kinds of poems. So for, when we were children, we, tw- we traced our knees is, is, the line, is the next line. Shins and elbows for the slightest hint of wound is the next line. Search them for any sad red-blue scab marking us is the next line. So what is that? What's the process for that? What's the choice the poet makes to do that? I mean, that's I think that's going back to what you were saying about the, the oral quality. The standard approach is that you're supposed to take an extra pause or that there's supposed to be either a mental pause or an actual spoken pause between lines. Um, mm-hmm. But 
I mean, there's no hard and steady rules, so you could do whatever you want, and she does. A lot of times, like, you look at the next po- poem, Love Potion, right. 2012, she's all over the place in terms of line breaks. There's no, this is not a predictable, this is not a, a villanelle, this is not a sonnet, this is not a sestina, this is not a structured poem, and I don't think any of her stuff is really uh, a, any kind of traditional structure. She has lots of long lines, um, but no, I think it's just her feeling, you know, however she wants to to put it. In this particular poem, I feel like the ends of the lines matter less than the beginnings of the next lines, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, like, to start with amputated legs, to start with open to its red syrup, can to start with maybe you, which several lines start like that, you know, I feel like she's choosing where to start a line rather to end a line. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's a really tiny difference, but each of each line makes sense and is beautiful on its own because of where it begins. You know which one we haven't mentioned yet, but I love, I mostly love it for the title, which is something I feel like is unique to poetry. Like a good title really sets you up for a good poem. Um, And I love this title more than anything. As a consequence of my brother stealing all the light bulbs. And then it's just a list of things. It's just a list of things that are happening Mm -hmm. literally and figuratively in their lives as a consequence of her brother stealing all the light bulbs. And it's it's a Mm -hmm. it's pretty simple. I mean, it doesn't go bananas as writers describing, but it's it's extremely sad and it's extremely specific. You know, like that's what poetry gets to do. I feel like that a lot of fiction and nonfiction writers take advantage of. It's just about one thing. It's just about light bulbs and darkness. And she doesn't really have to talk about anything else other than those two things. And within that poem is contained the entire problem of the drug addiction. I think that's a great poem to point out. And I think that that's her strength is when she decides to fixate on one very specific smaller thing. Um, She has this one called The Facts of Art, too, which is... She is referencing, it begins with a quote, woven plaque baskets with sunflower designs, Hopi, Arizona, before 1935, and that that's a quote from an American Indian basketry exhibit in Portsmouth, Virginia. So essentially, she's telling the backstory to a Hopi basket that's sitting in a museum somewhere. And she takes that very specific, you know, idea of this basket and its plaque sitting in a museum and she extends it into this history and I love that and she does the mm-hmm. same thing with mm-hmm. um, the last Mojave Indian Barbie you know and like she takes a very specific idea and the last Mojave Indian the last Mojave Indian Barbie I'm, I'm assuming it's a made up idea like uh, yes Indian, <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's ever been an Indian Barbie although no. I wouldn't be surprised if Mattel tried but but it, you know the, this idea of like an Indian Barbie and then she extends it out actually that's a prose poem uh, into like four pages, and I like when she does that. When I start with w- when she starts with one image or one idea, and then just focuses on that. And I, you know, like and again with the brother poem, the Aztec idea is another great one. But when she's a little less focused and she's all over the place with her, and she, it feels like she's trying to do too much. Like she's trying to be too ambitious within one poem. And I, I think like you were saying, Julia, poetry is best when it's specific and immediate and she gets a little derailed for me. Before I say this, because it's going to sound snarky, like I really, really enjoyed this, and I really enjoyed the narrative thread of of the family life. I, I like the combination of a narrative thread and a poetical experience, so I like that. However, oh, here we have one political poem, one vagina poem, you know, one <laughs> or two poems about <laughs> racism, and then all the poems we really want to read. You know what I mean? It was like... That's interesting. It was very, Mm. to me, I mean, and some of the ones that were off topic, I mean, they were good poems or or even great poems, but it did feel like, I mean, when I read the vagina slash period poems, I I was like, okay, (laughs) I, I, it doesn't, it can't, it doesn't mean it can't be a good subject, but it felt like, you know like one of every little category that I would expect to be. Right. In mm. a, well, let me, let me get, be really harsh and say, this felt like an MFA workshop collection. It felt like somebody who went through an MFA program had to write a bunch of different poems in a different styles with different subjects that had been assigned or different teachers had said, why don't you explore this area? And I feel like she still hasn't found 
who she is as a poet yet. Uh, Ryder, I'm going to argue with you, though. I think she has found her voice. What she hasn't found is a sense of editing into one unique reading Oh, I experience. totally agree with that. You're totally so right. So she no, has yeah, exactly, certain poems exactly. that are exactly on voice, and I feel like no one else could have written mm-hmm. them, and they don't feel derivative to me at all. It's just there's other That's stuff totally in the way. Should we talk about Camille Dungy? Man, did I love this book. I love this book so much. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear from you, Tad. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I frequently did not know what I was reading about. <laughs> yeah. So, um... When I understood everything, I was really profoundly moved, and um, there was. But I mean, I don't. I, I think you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself, man. I am putting like, a lot of pressure because I mean, the I don't goddamn know if I, poet laureate is on my I ass. Know. I know, <laughs> but I don't know if like it's funny to me because I don't know if what you're looking for is what you should be looking for. I agree. Like I don't know if you should be looking at these as like a riddle that you have to solve and that you're afraid you're gonna so, because I don't know if I know what every poem is about, really, but I can tell you, it's like, I don't know, it's like, I think reading poetry, especially in a collection like this, should be like a, a we should approach it like we're an album. That gets back to the point of whether you should read it all in, in one sitting, or, you know, it's like an album. You can do it both ways. And, that, and then also, like, music, I don't know if there's like a definitive, this is the, I mean, sometimes a poem just makes you feel a certain way, or you mm-hmm. walk away with one interpretation, and it's completely wrong but it doesn't matter because it's a catchy tune and it's in your head so you like it that way i think that that's fine too so i wouldn't put so much pressure on yourself i mean i totally there, there's agree. tendencies that i can say about this book overall i could tell you what i think it's i think it's about in in some really really general sense but i don't know if that's much more than saying like well there was an acoustic guitar and a stand-up <laughs> bass and that was in that band well, let me yeah. tell you the, the one agree. thing that has stuck with me profoundly since finishing reading it and that is the word never that explanation Hmm. of never that she has um when i read that i was sitting at my kitchen table uh eating some oatmeal and reading poetry i felt i felt like how i imagine writer is on a day-to-day basis just you know (laughs) pretty cool and uh i am constantly reminded and moved by this word never um, yeah. which is a concept Camille Dungy talks about in uh, a poem called A Prayer for P. Um, I'll read this, uh, this little section of it, section eight of this poem. Knowledge isn't always good, you know. Not knowing might be better. Consider, never. is overwhelming when it's the answer waiting for the question that must come. It's been a long time since I saw my girl. Need to see my girl. I miss her. Girl, I miss you. When will I see you again? That's something. Never. That's really something heavy to hoist. My friend was light. She was light. Enough. I hardly noticed her sometimes. So this idea of oh, so the great. permanence of never mm-hmm. um, has really... It's, I've been thinking about it. So this, this poem, I knew what it was about. Um, I got it, and I, I got the thread of it. Well, uh, did you get that it was an acrostic poem? Uh, I had no idea what it was. Wait, I had no really? idea until it was in the back. Yes, and I didn't even know what an acrostic poem was. I had to How look it up. How do you not know what an acrostic back, poem was? Hasn't, haven't we all done that? It, Holy shit, how did I miss I, this? Yeah, and what it says is it's it's about somebody oh! waiting for somebody who was lost at sea to return. <laughs> oh my God. That's what it's, it's about somebody lighting a candle and praying for their sailor to return from sea. Holy shit. You're, wait, you guys, this is you just blew my fucking mind. Oh my God. Yeah, so it's in the notes at the back of the book. The third note is that this poem is an acrostic derived from Cavafy's poem Prayer. Um, yeah, so it's already it's uh, she's taken another poem and, and written acrostically, which uh, I didn't. I had to look it up, but for our listeners, an acrostic poem is where you take the a, a sentence or a word or in this case a poem, and uh, you take the first letter and you make that the whole line of the poem. So it's like those old poems we all did where you write your name or somebody's name and then you put like. Writer, R for radical, or, you know, I for whatever. God damn it, Camille Dungy. How did I not know this? This is a (laughs) Camille Dungy, you magnificent bastard. You know, what's funny is that for all our talk about poetry, this is one that has a sort of riddle component to it. Um, I think that regardless of its connection to this other poem, this is a beautiful poem. And you don't really need to know that is the guiding principle for her structurally it still works as a poem and each section is very different from each other so they're all it's almost like eight separate poems all around the idea of losing a friend or losing this woman and what that means um i want to read my favorite section from this poem page 25 the third section my dictionary has 64 definitions for the word open none of them defining how i feel now my heart a little more open because without her 
not the memory of her, the knowledge, not the insubstantial decoys my mind sets up in lieu of her, but without the woman, friend, her embodied body. Without her, this space is a little more open, and now I am left to consider if there be anything, any rare thing that might invoke her, who she was, marvelously good. It used to be they didn't know America, only some folks put their experience on paper. Mostly, America was a dream spoken, directing another dream, directing another dream, directing another. And P, when she heard America, heard what she wanted. Even those old map makers wanted us to want, almost as much as they wanted us to fear, to get to the places beyond the places we know. Oh, it's so good. That's really yeah. good. I mean, the way that she compares, you know, wanting to be around this friend or, or how you feel about something that's not there to this map making project and how we're afraid of what we don't know but we still feel the need to explore these feelings it's like there's it's so complicated it works on so many levels like that to me is just perfect poetry i'm just going to go on a limb and say what i think i got mostly from this whole collection um and it starts with the, the first poem after opening the new york times i wonder how to write a poem about love and to me so much of this book or this collection ends up um, being about living a domestic controlled life, like living your daily life where you listen to NPR and you go to Costco and you drive your car and you <laughs> have to, you know, you have discussions and, and, and wa take walks and, and then underneath the surface or happening at the exact same time is all this violence and mm -hmm. horror and really dark ecological destruction and all that stuff is going on like right at the same time and it's so these poems end up being like you're skating along the surface and then you just keep falling into these really terrifying thoughts and images and things that you don't want to think about or you want to ignore and that we all feel on a on a daily basis we should ignore um that's kind of what i took away from this whole collection it, I don't know if you guys... I didn't come away with the one overall idea, but now that you're saying it, it invokes two of my favorite poems, which are, like, vastly different. One was on ice, and it's just a description of ice mm -hmm. cracking, essentially. Oh, mm -hmm. well, no, it's about um, an explorer falling through the ice, but you have to read the notes to know that. But it doesn't matter because it's interesting on its own. So she describes right. ice smooth as an egg, ice smooth as an egg with a hole like the birds just hatching, ice smooth as an egg mm -hmm. with cracks like the birds furious hatching. And it just goes along this description of ice cracking and also actually i think my favorite poem in this whole collection was um since everyone can never be safe which is the one about the dogs eating each other and children yes. and it's about two things equally dogs eating each other and kids playing tag or playing that mm -hmm. kind of tag i forget what what it's actually called but um it's the kind of tag where there's always someone who's it and everyone else is paired up and it was just so you know, frank and horrible. And the last line of it is nothing could be more ordinary than that. And uh, it was just extremely disturbing. And I, I thought really well done and exactly what you're saying, Ryder. And that poem, the way that has like references to arugula salad and cashews <laughs> and organic tomatoes, but then it also has I, images of like a dog dragging its own stomach behind it. Mm. The one that, that, that brought home a lot of these themes and started getting me thinking is Daisy Cutter. Mm -hmm. um, because just the title, Daisy Cutter, I was like, what the hell is that? And I ended up looking it up, but she actually explains it in the back of the book, which I wish I had known that there were notes. But Daisy Cutter, which sounds like the title or the name of a flower or something, obvious, or maybe a tool used to it's cut daisies. It's a bomb. It's a bomb. Yeah, it's like a bomb that was used in Vietnam and is, was still used, I think, in our invasion of Iraq. Yeah. So when I looked that up, I was like, oh, because then it's about a poem about flowers, or it starts off as a poem about flowers, and then... You just there's images of flamethrower. Here, here, here's something I found while reading Camille Dungy's book that I didn't feel while reading Natalie Diaz's, which is that I felt um, more personally invested in what Camille Dungy was writing about because it was closer to my actual life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think it might go to what you were talking about, um, writer, which is sort of her poem about pondering how to write a poem while reading the New York Times, which is that Camille Dungy's living sort of a normal domestic um, suburban life. And that is yeah. not what Natalie Diaz is writing about. Um, the Camille Dungy is, you know, looking at the fucked up world of, you know, a big city America, basically, and her interior life. And so that appealed to me 
in a way that Natalie Diaz's didn't. So in a way, it was Natalie Diaz's book to me was like reading a great novel, um, mm-hmm. whereas Camille Dungy's book was more like reading for me someone that I could personally identify with sharing their views about a terrible fucked up world that we live in. This is a pretty broad discussion for what I feel like, so our listeners know, are very readable poems. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, I feel like what fiction does a lot of the times, and definitely nonfiction, is take a bunch of insane feelings or experiences or whatever and make sense of them and logically think them out, either narratively or literally logically in the case of essays and what the job of poetry is to me is to take an ordinary experience that we think makes sense and expand it or explode it so that it no longer feels like a boring ordinary thing you know what i mean so like camille dungy's books that was a great way to put it Mm. there her her what her subjects, Todd, like the reason you're feeling that is like, that's exactly what she's doing. It's a very literal level of, you know, I'm having dinner mm-hmm. with my girlfriends and we're watching a YouTube video of dogs eating themselves. And if you were to read <laughs> that in fiction or nonfiction, like that's right. a totally different experience than, than pulling it like, or not pulling it, like almost uh, slingshotting it to a totally other brain level. And sometimes that means those things no longer make sense. And sometimes it means those things aren't even identifiable. But, I mean, that's what I go to poetry for. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great point. Can we just, I just want to read a section. It's actually a poem in this collection that I have no idea what it's about. I have have theories of it. It's a poem (laughs) called Flight. Um, oh, but I was just looking reason, at that one again, yes. The reason I want to read a section of it is because this is, a, to me, a great example of how uh, good she is just on a word level, on a, on a very, you know, sensual level of the, the writing of the poem itself. The second stanza, You slid into the summer of my sleeping, crept into my lonely hours, ate the music of my dreams. You filled yourself with the treated sweet I offered, then shut your rolling eyes and stole my sleep. Uh, that's just like great i haven't even know what she's talking about right there but i love it so much you know like i just i read this poem maybe 10 times in a row it was like a great song i just had to keep going over it Uh, this this to me is this kind of craft and attention to uh i guess it's restraint and control in language is is what i was felt lacking in natalie diaz you're reading a feeling, you know what I mean? Like, in, in a way, like, the ultimate poem is the Jabberwocky, you know what I mean? Because it's mm-hmm. not logical, but you come away with a true sense of what is happening or or not even what's happening of, like, this... The reason it's understandable what's happening is, like, the, you know, the use of language creates something that we're familiar with. So there's, like, a weird sense where you know it's nonsensical, but it's also extremely familiar. And I think... You know, if you're feeling a connection to individual words like writer is, or if you come away, you know, with a very specific emotion that, I mean, I personally can't even describe when I read a poem like that, you know, then then that's it. The poem has done its job. You don't need to come away with, not every poem has to be a metaphor. You know what I mean? Not every poem has yeah. to be a, a statement or a title. Well, or, let me ask yeah. you, let me ask you a uh, pedagogical question then. And I should probably be the one who can answer these things. Since I am the professor here, but there we go. Um, Then if anything goes, if all poetry is, is the response the reader has to however the writer creates that emotion, why teach it? Why can't people just do it? You know, what's the value in saying these are the different forms, these are the rules of the forms? I think my answer to you, Todd, is so you should teach poetry so that people can express what they're attempting to express. So give them the tools to say what they want to say or make the reader feel what they want to feel. You know, it's it's really that simple for me. Like, if I want to write a poem that blows someone's mind or express something very... If I want to write a poem depicting the absolute, you know, frustration and horror of working with you guys, writing this, you know, <laughs> making this <laughs> podcast, you know, then I need someone, I might need someone to teach me to give me tools to express that exactly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's the point of teaching writing to me at all. Well, I, I don't think necessarily that writing can be taught, which again is odd because of course I run a graduate school. I believe talent can be fostered. Yeah. So I believe you got to have it to begin with. No one's going to, 
no one's going to teach you how to write a poem necessarily unless you already have an ability to express complex human emotions, right? I know, like, for me, going back to what Julia said way early on when we first started talking about these books, um, I think that when you're a teenager and you're discovering the power of literature and the power of words, poetry is very attractive because it's free. Mm-hmm. And it's very—it's just about the power of the words. It's just about the freedom to do whatever you want. And so I think a lot of people get attracted to that and get stuck in that and don't think that there's any value to challenging that or, or to learning form in order to then later break it. Mm. And I think that is an example of where it would be really good to study old poems or, or realize, you know, it's kind of like when you fall in love for the first time as a teenager, you think you're the only person that's ever fallen in love. <laughs> and then, of course, when you're 25 or whatever, you start realizing, like, oh, there are patterns in human behavior. There are ways that, you know, I fall in love. And, and learning about life and the wisdom will make falling in love even better when it happens after the age of 20 or whatever. Right. And I think poetry is the same way. It's like it, it's it, there is an organic element to it that just naturally occurs to people like, Oh, I want I want to say this thing, and it's coming out of me, and it comes out this way, and it's really abstract and crazy, and it's not it's not literal, it's you know metaphorical or I, I don't know whatever it comes out of you as naturally poetry. A lot of times that impulse is really good, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will result in readable good poetry. Mm-hmm. Here, here's my my final thought here on uh, on these two books of poetry, both of which I really enjoyed, and, and thank you, uh, Eloise Klein Healy, who also has a new book of poetry out. I should note. Um, for recommending these books to us, um, is that I have returned to the poems I found really moving like I would return to songs, um, which is not something I do with books or not something I do with short stories, that I've gone back and re-experienced these short poems again um, subsequent to reading the book. And that's that has been an unusual experience for me as a reader, um, that I'm looking to experience that, that emotion that I got that first time again. Um, and I think that's that for me is some of the allure of reading these poems and poetry in general is you can go back and you can feel it again and it only takes you 30 seconds. It doesn't take you 10 days of reading the Odyssey right. or something, mm-hmm. um, which I found interesting. So we'll, we'll read more poetry at some point, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. But not another play. We're never going to read another play. I would like to read another play. I don't, I don't want to re- read another play. Really? Yeah. That was the that of all the things that we've read. That's the one you hated the most. Well, if they made a play out of um, people go where the chairs are, that would be the worst thing I could possibly be. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we tackle the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Like us on Facebook, Facebook.com/LiteraryDisco, and follow us on Twitter at LiteraryDisco. Thanks for listening.